Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Paul Farmer to talk about global health equity, both with reference to past health crises as well as today's. In July of last year, Prime Minister Trudeau wrote in a joint op-ed alongside other world leaders that where you live should not determine whether you live. But of course, our continued reality is that it does. Dr. Farmer is professor and chair of the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School, chief of the Division of Global Health Equity at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and co-founder and chief strategist of Partners in Health, which he co-founded in 1987. Partners in Health is dedicated to bringing a high standard of public health care to the most vulnerable communities around the world. And Paul has worked with his colleagues to help those communities respond to infectious diseases. He's been described as the man who would cure the world. And in his recent book, Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds, he writes about his firsthand experience in West Africa responding to the Ebola crisis and what we can learn from it. There are, of course, lessons for the current crisis in which we live, including reasons to support the TRIPS waiver, to remove IP rights as a barrier to our stated aim of global and equitable access to vaccines and treatment. There are also lessons for future crises and how we can play a stronger role in building public health capacity to ensure we have staff, stuff, space, and systems to respond when crisis does strike. Dr. Farmer is the subject of a documentary as well, Bending the Arc, the story of how he and his friends began Partners in Health and really an international movement to improve global health. I should also note that Partners in Health Canada is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year, and Mark Brender, National Director of PIH Canada, is a constituent, and he was kind with his time in arranging this conversation. Paul, thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. If here is a concept more than a place. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Now, you have dedicated your life to treating infectious diseases around the world. But for those learning about Partners in Health and really about you for the first time, what is it that prompted you to dedicate your life in this way and prompted you to create Partners in Health? Well, I had this this, uh, remarkable and serendipitous experience of going to Haiti in between college and medical school. And that's really the answer, period. You know, I just I just learned so much during that year. Um, and by the time I started medical school, um, you know, I thought, I want to get involved in this work. And the work in question, uh, the work that Partners in Health concerns itself with is really to provide medical services to those who wouldn't otherwise have them. And uh, of course, that's a lot of people in the world. It's probably about half of the people in many of the places I work, maybe more, but that number always go. that fraction goes down. You know, there, that's, that's uh, maybe another part of the answer to your question. Uh, one of the reasons that we were motivated to do it is because it's effective. It, it works. It's uplifting. So uh, that's in there too. You have written many things over the course of your career as a professor and as a practicing physician, but your recent book, Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds, Ebola and the Ravages of History, you emphasize the historical and colonial impacts on current public health practices and really a control over care mentality. When you look back to those experiences and, and you draw from that recent writing, are there lessons that we are living through perhaps that we were unlearned in the course of this crisis? Well, you know, I think the 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 experience responding to Ebola, uh, Partners in Health's experience responding to Ebola, and you know I was part of that, has uh, a lot of 
lessons that are of you know urgent importance right now um and there are lessons about containment and care um and you know there's a great deal of specificity to those lessons just as an example you know i i remember at the beginning of the uh, ebola outbreak in west africa <clears throat> i remember reading uh really right away about vaccines and antivirals that were on the shelf some of them from canada i believe and uh, you know would they get there in time to make a difference and and in the end they did uh, it took a long time but in the end one of the reasons that the west african epidemic uh, was slowed down was the integration of prevention and care um with better contact tracing but also better care and then finally the promise of the vaccine and so that's just one example of uh, a, a matter of uh, summary importance to, to pretty much everybody on the planet now. And that's, of course, one of the big, biggest differences, the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic. This is everybody. And while it is everyone, it affects different parts of our society in much greater ways. And that that equity lens that is often missing sometimes, I suppose it can be missing sometimes in, in health, that when we look at the impact of the pandemic here in Canada even, but certainly around the world, it has disproportionately impacted those with less. And in the Canadian context, racialized Canadians, as a policymaker in Canada and, and as someone in your shoes with, with experience tackling these issues and taking an equity lens, from where you started in Haiti to Peru to Rwanda to West Africa, what lessons should policymakers really be taking to heart to ensure that we don't keep reliving that same inequity? You know, um, this is really the reason that we ended up putting this preposterously bold mission statement together in 1987 and in, in launching Partners in Health. We even said that we would make a preferential option for the poor in healthcare. Now that term, which we cribbed from Latin American liberation theology, doesn't please everybody. Uh, even some people who say, well, you know, we don't really think of ourselves as the poor, we think of ourselves as, and then fill in the blank. But the point that you're making about the equity lens and it's important was really what drove us to try and underline uh, the those living in extreme poverty. For example, a racialized lens in Haiti doesn't mean the same thing that it does in Canada or the United States, right? These are related topics historically, uh, but they have different meanings in different places, different in Rwanda, different in a prison in Siberia, different on Navajo, different with the, you know, the tribes of Southern Ontario, on and on it goes. But in every instance, a an equity lens is a very helpful thing to put on. I want to get to the equity lens as it relates to intellectual property considerations. But before we do, the other lesson really to be learned from your really lifetime of work, but including your work in West Africa, is this notion of capacity building. And right. Partners in Health talks about staff stuff space social supports so walk me through the importance of that kind of capacity building to really deliver strong and, and impactful healthcare. yeah i mean you know if you go into what i've called in this book a clinical desert uh, meaning they don't have the staff stuff space and systems that they need still less the support to deliver effective care 
So the first sets of challenges, whether you're in a squatter settlement in rural Haiti or a post-war zone in Sierra Leone, post-genocide region of Rwanda, which is to say all of it, in, in all of those settings, you're going to need staff space and systems. But say, for example, you're working in Siberia, maybe you don't need the same kind of space. For example, if they have plenty of hospitals, you don't have to build those, whereas in rural Haiti, you, you do. And, and so uh, the formula itself, which is very simple and simplistic, is, is uh, helpful to orient. When we walk ourselves through it, we end up turning to these very simple and simplistic mnemonics, really. Who are the staff we need? What's the stuff we need? What kind of space do we need? What kind of systems do we need? We know everybody needs support through serious illness. So, for example, with Ebola, we knew from the very beginning that we needed nursing, skilled nursing care that we needed uh, ICU uh, nurses and doctors, emergency room nurses and doctors, people to help us put in IVs, et cetera. We knew that from the beginning because of the nature of the disease and the nature of the place, right? Where civil war had taken out the staff stuff, space and systems that they had. So uh, on to the space, what is a safe space to deliver care for Ebola look like? Well, it didn't look like the spaces that were there. Unfortunately, by the time purpose-built each Ebola treatment units could be uh, erected, the epidemic was over. So we also had to take existing space and turn it into something safer in order to deliver care. Anyway, these may sound like terribly, uh, again, straightforward matters, uh, and, and they are in a way, but in the thick of an epidemic uh, or a pandemic, you know, sometimes it's hard to organize your thoughts. And so to walk each other through this, to accompany one another, we focus very heavily on the material needs of the patients, including their medical needs. And, and in the course of that work, of course, you see all kinds of other problems. You mentioned already capacity building. It was kind of stunning to me to know that the British had been in Sierra Leone for so long, since the end of the 18th century until the 1960s, and that they never saw fit to build, uh, to build a medical school or a nursing school during all those long years. So the capacity building also needs to include building those kind of facilities to train people. And that, that of course, requires uh, an, another level of commitment. And, uh, and, you know, we'd like to make sure that Partners in Health always remembers those commitments, too, to building local capacity. And again, it always works. I mean, I haven't been to Haiti in a year, but I know that the work is going on because not only do we have the staff stuff, space, and systems we need there now, um, but we also have training programs. We have a university hospital that can, I mean, for example, since the earthquake in 2010, we built the hospital, launched Haiti's first emergency medicine training program, and saw its first cohort graduated already years ago. All young women, by the way, all young emergency doctors now. So that kind of commitment takes years but let's not exaggerate. I mean, it's not that many years. To see that happen in just 10 years is pretty remarkable. I've often thought of it through the lens, this notion of capacity building with a democratic governance lens and that we want to help build institutions and, and make sure that those local institutions last well beyond our, our time on the ground or our international aid or our efforts to help build that capacity. And I, I really found it interesting. This is a while ago now that you wrote this, but it's re related to this question of, of capacity building. But you mentioned the earthquake in Haiti in 2010, 
And in the wake of that, you'd written of the $6 billion in humanitarian recovery funding from 2010 to 2012, less than 10% went directly to that local government, less than 1% of the immediate relief to the government. But what really stood out was less than 1% invested in Haitian organizations and businesses, only 1.5 or so percent of contracts went to local companies. And when we get to that conversation about local capacity building, it seems lost in our international aid efforts in some respects. And that's a while ago that you were writing that, but it, it still seems to hold true, unfortunately. Uh, alas, it does hold, hold true. And, you know, you could argue that um, without a capacity building component, a real one, a brisk one, a robust one, that, uh, you know, you haven't addressed really any of the root causes of the fragility of a place like urban Haiti um, in the middle of an earthquake or right after it. And so it is with Ebola and so it is with Zika and so it is with COVID. You know, there's always that, that kind of reparative work to do. And uh, one of the things that I'm most grateful for in going to Haiti in 1983, you know, I was 23 years old. I, didn't, I wasn't prepared. Um, I was more prepared than some, but I, I wasn't prepared enough. And one of the things that I'm most grateful for was the directness of the host community the, where I still live all these years later, you know, people have forgotten that it was a squatter settlement. It doesn't look like a squatter settlement at all. But people were very explicit. We want to be able to do things like go to medical school, go to nursing school, become engineers, build hospitals, whatever, whatever was happening around us. And, you know, it took a while for that to sink in. That That's part of the pathology that we see in foreign aid. You know, if there are, if this is a contractual arrangement, and you're outsourcing all the capacity building, then you're not going to meet a central goal of the development exercise, which is to diminish inequality of opportunity as well. And it's interesting when you think through concepts of cost effectiveness. I, I had Peter Singer on the podcast a while ago, and this notion of effective altruism is one that appeals to me in many respects, but I also find it difficult to walk through how one really measures impact because I know I can send nets to respond to malaria and I can help build stuff. Well, that's an immediate cost-effective intervention potentially in a short-term way. And capacity building is complex, it's costly, and the results really aren't borne out until one sees the long-term view. We tend to think of cost-effectiveness, I think, through a short-term lens rather than a long-term lens, unfortunately. And, you know, in addition to measuring the impact and the challenges of doing that on a short timeline, there are really serious analytic problems with a lot of the commentary on both cost and effectiveness. So we've seen that, that paradigm. I'm sure it, it, we've seen it be very useful in some settings, right? Uh, but we've seen it also balderized, distorted, so that you don't even have honest inputs regarding cost or effectiveness going there. You know, just to take an example uh, that, you know, changed my life. You know, remember in these arguments about therapy for AIDS, antiretroviral therapy, I happened to be finishing my training in infectious disease when it became clear in the Harvard teaching hospitals that a three drug combination of these drugs, antivirals, would suppress HIV because, you know, that's what we saw. Our patients who were dying in Boston's teaching hospitals got up, went home, and stopped dying, right? So we immediately started having discussions, which were quite dismissive, about how it wasn't cost-effective or feasible or sustainable 
to use the, these therapies on the continent of Africa, the most heavily afflicted continent. Now, what if there is no other therapy? Because there wasn't, and there still isn't. It's still the therapy. So you're not comparing two equivalent therapies like you might expect. I think a lot of people who hear cost-effectiveness, they want to know which one of these interventions is the most cost-effective. They don't want to compare this to no intervention at all. Um, and, and that's what we saw during the uh, early aughts, the late 90s and early aughts. Um, that's what we see again and again, cancer care, complex management of COVID that requires intubation and mechanical ventilation. All of these discussions keep going on and on as if we had multiple equivalent therapies, and we don't. So we also have to be very critical, I think, of uh, comparing one intervention, one therapeutic intervention or a vaccine to nothingness, right? Uh, and, and believe it or not, uh, in some of these discussions, well, you know, in some of these discussions, that's really what we're doing, which is idiotic, right? I mean, you, you wouldn't let your mother's care be determined by deciding that no therapy is cost effective for her or your daughter's. Um, so why would we do that uh, on behalf of other people who happen to be largely black and brown people? And when we look at those significant populations around the world that are not likely to receive vaccines in the near term because they are not lucky to live in Canada or the United States or the UK and obviously affluent countries that can afford to pay for vaccine doses with, with limited supply, limited suppliers. There's a conversation right now, it's been ongoing, I suppose, a request was made by certain countries back in the fall, and there continues to be debate even today. I've had conversations with Minister Gould and, and others in the government on this question of the TRIPS waiver. So ensuring that there is greater access and that IP doesn't stand in the way as a barrier to ensuring that people around the world can enjoy safety through, through vaccines. You've said, if we want to stop COVID-19 here, we have to stop it everywhere, and the world does not have time to wait for the usual slow and unequal distribution of treatment, diagnostics, and vaccines. I, I take it you would strongly support the TRIPS waiver and, and the position of, you, you mentioned African countries. To my knowledge, every African country has signed on to, to call for this waiver. Well, that in, in and of itself is a reason for me to support it, um, that kind of unanimity. And that was, as you said, last fall. Um, 55 uh, countries, I believe, uh, all of them uh, in the African Union. So that would be reason enough. But I, but I will add that, uh, you know, this is, to me, not unrelated to the other matter you brought up about contracting and foreign aid. It, 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 the whole system is, is warped, right? Because we don't consider the people who need vaccines to be customers or even our clients. There are patients or people in need, right? And, and indeed, the fact that I'm right uh, on this is clear because the, the, the vaccines are not being sold as product to the individual re recipient, right? Not in Canada, not in the United States. I got mine for free, two of them. It's not as if we're always reduced to having these contractual business type relationships. So that's another reason to question whether or not uh, the idea of, you know, uh, selling the vaccine um, is really the right one. 
And by the way, uh, I can say from some work I've been doing with, uh, with Rwanda is they can't even buy the, the vaccine that they need, even if they can pay full price. It's, it's, the vaccine has been seized. Uh, the vaccine that's around right now has been taken by uh, the larger and wealthier countries that could, right? So we're in a situation where we need to think about local capacity building again. I lived in Rwanda for 10 years and, and I've worked there for almost 20. And I, and I know from long experience that they could do a great job manufacturing vaccines. And, and the new vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, are an entirely new and revolutionary uh, technology that could have broad implications for other illnesses, agricultural use, et cetera. So there are lots of other reasons to want them to have that production capacity. But the main one is that uh, the existing arrangements will fail for the reasons that they're failing now. They won't be able to get product or get it in time. And they'll have to worry about being last in line because they're last in line for so many other things that they've been fighting for. So I think, yes, I support the TRIPS waiver. Um, I'm a little annoyed that I have to know anything about it. I didn't go to medical school to study trade arrangements. And yet here I am again. I thought I was done after NAFTA. (laughs) You know, uh, it it doesn't make sense uh, from the point of view of the patient. Uh, It does make sense probably from the point of view of the virus. But we, we really need to rethink how we're doing matters when we face these great public health crises like this. I noted you, you said earlier that eventually vaccine efforts came to West Africa, but any delay ultimately cost lives that I'd read in the midst of the AIDS crisis, the Doha Declaration affirmed IP rules and compulsory licensing, generic medicines and more, but that more than 5 million people died while waiting for those rules to be settled upon. And so time time is really of the essence. Not to uh, amplify the CanCon just because I'm on your show. Uh, (laughs) Feel free. You take take the, the tools that we had when there was that first case of Ebola in Guinea whenever that was, probably December of 2013. So what happened between 2013 and 2016 when, you know, we started to use the virus? What happened to the, sorry, the vaccine? What happened to the vaccine? What happened to the therapeutics? What happened to the diagnostic? They really didn't change much in the course of those two years. They had already been developed. They'd been developed not as products or things to sell, but they had been developed uh, after the basic science research required to uh, come up with these innovations, and they sat on the shelf, right? So, you know, whether or not that's because of a perceived low amount of impact that an Ebola vaccine could have, right? It's not uh, a common disease. But again, we didn't even know a year ago or 15 months ago that we'd see a new coronavirus that would uh, wreak havoc. So there's a, there's a lot of reason to be worried about anything that slows down the broad distribution based on need of the tools that are being developed to promote health and well-being. Sometimes they're preventives like vaccines. Sometimes they're diagnostics, as we've seen during COVID. 
mess-ups in diagnostics can cause all kinds of problems. And sometimes they're therapeutics, they're, they're treatments. But regardless, we need to make sure we can get our hands on them based on need. Um, and we don't have a, a, an equity platform like that yet. Our prime minister had written alongside other world leaders a number of months ago about the importance of global health equity in relation to vaccines and more. And we've certainly contributed to COVAX. And it, and it did seem to be, we were criticized in Canada for drawing from that facility to some extent, but it it seemed to me that that was how it was set up. It was set up to say, encourage in your self-interest to contribute to it, that you would benefit a little bit, but the rest of the world would benefit a, a bit along the way as well. That facility seems like a really important way of standing yeah. up global health equity efforts. But in the current crisis, it also seems really important, but insufficient. Well, I think I think that really nails it because, you know, going back to Rwanda, it's really through COVAX that they received their first uh, 103,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine and I think about a quarter of a million AstraZeneca vaccine. That's COVAX. And people there were thrilled. In the hospitals where I worked, most of the community health workers have already lined up for vaccine. Uh, all the staff in one of the hospitals we that we built in the north of Rwanda, everybody's been vaccinated. So that's a great thing to celebrate, right? But the president of Rwanda added something in his tweet thanking COVAX. He said, some people are more equal than others. And, you know, that nails it too, because now they're back in line waiting for vaccine when they could clearly manage not only manufacturing, but also a really equitable distribution. I know prisoners in jail who've been vaccinated in Rwanda. And I know that refugees have been vaccinated in Rwanda. So, I mean, here's a chance for us to learn too about how to do it right, how to, in the United States, in any case, and I'm sure Canada has some similar problems. And finally, getting back to COVAX and the rules of distribution, you've probably noticed in Canada, as in the United States, that all of the vaccine distribution is based on risk and demographics, right? We don't have a response system for outbreaks. Right? We're, not, we're not responding to outbreaks with vaccine, a strategy that has been used not only to end smallpox, but really to end the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, that is ring vaccination. There's an outbreak, you do contact tracing, and then you provide vaccination to every contact of someone who's been proven positive and also the contacts of the contacts. And you can go to a third layer as well. So, you know, either we have to rethink COVAX so we can also add on the outbreak response that will be required going forward. Look at what's happened in Asia, right? I mean, in much of Asia, vigorous contact tracing allowed them to rein in these epidemics, which could have been every bit as large, I imagine, as ours or Brazil's, and uh, and yet it hasn't been. And now with a vaccine, you can imagine this would be a painful, but ultimately very happy year. I mean, there's going to be a lot of tragedy over the next few months, but if we could speed this up and make it better and learn from experiences like those in Rwanda, I think we're all going to be happier on the planet. You mentioned contact tracing. It clearly is an established 
response that we have failed at in, at least in Canada. I know other countries have enjoyed success and, and maybe it's unfair to actually paint Canada with that brush. Certain provinces, I live in Ontario and we certainly failed at contact tracing. There was such a rush to reopen at times to address the real negative consequences and, and related public health consequences to business closures and more and, and loss of employment. But in efforts to reopen, they didn't take the same effort to scale up contact tracing to in a commensurate way. And it, it, it's really been a challenge. And I would say a clear principle of the public health response that has been missing. Well, I mean, if I could just add, you can imagine how painful this is for many of us at Partners in Health. After all, you know, we launched the first statewide program, uh, contact tracing program, and that was in Massachusetts. But really, uh, by the time the president of the republic fell ill with COVID, it was clear that on a national level, uh, we had failed. In fact, we were the world champions of contact tracing failure. And, and this was so dramatic from inside the United States, Nate. For example, the day after the president the United States was hospitalized for COVID. His chief of staff announced that containment would fail and that we would not even really try to do contact tracing about what happened in the Rose Garden or the White House, that the real uh, salvation was going to come from the vaccines. Now, that's true. The real salvation is going to come from the vaccines. But how many people are we going to lose on the way out because we haven't followed these basic public health conventions um, we know that they work, right? And we know that they're difficult and cause pain, don't get me wrong, and real pathology as well, but they work. So even now, when we have a very substantial fraction of the United States uh, already having received one, at least one vaccine, we've got a lot of pain ahead of us over the next few months because if we don't follow the rules that would prevent transmission, the vaccine is not going to save those people who get sick in the interim. I've followed some of the writing of your colleague at Harvard, Michael Mina, on rapid testing. And it's been another frustration on the testing side that not only have we failed to scale up the contact tracing, but just as you say, you go into a community, you contact trace, and then you roll the vaccines. Well, until such time as you have a, a sufficient supply of vaccines, my understanding would be at least that you would do the very same thing with testing. And at a minimum, it's a screening tool. I know with the rapid antigen tests, they're not perfect in some respects, but at least as a screening tool, we're sending kids back to school in Ontario and we don't have a clear rapid testing strategy. I could go on about supports and systems as it relates to paid sick leave, which we don't have enough of here in Ontario. We don't have at the provincial level. There's been an attempt at the federal level to fill that gap, I would say imperfectly. And it's just frustrating. You're mentioning public health principles and systems and, and supports, and we haven't learned in the developed world even. You know, you can talk about inequities around the world, but in the developed world, we, we really haven't taken these fundamental principles to heart. Well, the Rwandans have. You know, one of the things that was striking to me, I spent the month of August there, and uh, I'm not sure that I made any contributions of note because they were already doing a great job. But, you know, going up to a rural hospital, and then walking or driving through these small villages and seeing people sitting outside their tiny little homes, masked, uh, you know, social distancing, contact racing. It was very impressive to me. And it, 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 part of that was probably 
a rank familiarity with these crises. After all, they had just faced an Ebola outbreak on their western flank over the border in the DRC. And they had done contact tracing and ring vaccination on the border. So yeah, there was a more of a f- familiarity, but I don't think that explains away our inaction in the United States. To return a little bit just to that conversation about IP and the 55 African Union countries have all called for the waiver, but I saw Partners in Health posted a map and countries that are opposed to the waiver or supporting the waiver. Canada has been a bit equivocal, I would say. And so far as the formal position that I saw the ambassador take about a month ago was, we aren't opposed to the waiver. We're asking more questions and here are our questions. And and some of the questions are fair, frankly, as to point us to how Article 31 of TRIPS is insufficient in terms of compulsory licensing and more. But it is pretty stark when you look at the map and see the countries that are opposed to the waiver clearly have a monetary interest in the pharmaceutical uh, industry to a large degree, at least, and and or our allies with one another. And then the rest of the world that is clearly in the greatest need and has not struck the deals with the vaccine companies that the other that the countries opposed to the TRIPS waiver have generally struck. It, it is it really it really stands out in a serious way. You know, uh, the map of opposition to the TRIPS waiver is, you know, basically a map of colonial rule. And the opponents are those artists formerly known as the colonial powers. Now they get to call themselves the Western democracies without irony. But this is not a democratic approach to vaccination. And as for testing, as you point out, uh, we're way behind on a strategy there as well. It's probably going to be the new variants and their potential escape from vaccine coverage or therapeutic coverage uh, that will drive forward some of the testing changes. But we have to make significant improvements there as well. If you were in my shoes, I guess, I ask this often of people who who are much smarter than me, and you would be in that category unquestionably. So when, when it comes to advocacy as a member of parliament, we ought to continue conversations to add my voice to say Canada should be a force for good on the world stage and we should support efforts to make sure IP is not an obstacle to the public good and to public health. Step one. Step two, when we look at international aid writ large, that there ought to be a a really serious focus on capacity building. I know Minister Gould would share my desire for greater capacity building as it relates to democratic governance, but you really smartly emphasize the need to build out public health care systems in a serious way, because that's ultimately how governments and countries are going to respond. Is there anything else that if you were in my shoes, you would be focused on maybe in the immediate term in this crisis or, or beyond? Well, you know, if I were a member of parliament, I would also think it's okay to say, look, I, 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 it is your obligation to understand something like trips even more than mine, but It's not an ideological, I I mean, I don't feel like we should be called to make ideological uh, pronouncements about these matters. The question, even if it is simply, how do we distribute the vaccine so that everybody who needs it gets it, we're clearly going to run up into trade-related and intellectual property disagreements, right? Most of the companies have signaled a hostility to this, not all of them. Moderna didn't, for example. And, and, uh, you know, we just need an opening. And, you know, there are people, as you know, in progressive circles, the ones I very easily move in, who have a very ideological take on this. 
I'm just saying that's not really mine. It's an outcome-focused uh, approach on the vaccine front. On Canada's support for uh, mediocre uh, development projects, I, I think you know there's already the wherewithal in the ministry to say, okay, what is a what is a program that looks at gender equity, local capacity building, and strengthening the national institutions of the recipient country or whatever? What what would that look like? You couldn't have a response like the one you described for the earthquake in Haiti. And Canada, no offense, was one of the worst offenders uh, in the sense of it was very, very much like your neighbors to the south. You know, it was highly uh, privatized, NGOified. A lot of the resources went into uh, institutions that were not really fundamentally Haitian and didn't have a lot enough to do with uh, building capacity or strengthening local institutions like a ministry of health. You know, Canada wouldn't put up with a, a a weak and utterly underfunded Ministry of Health. So why should Haiti? And, uh, you know, there there were a number of organizations, NGOs, charities, whose budgets just to work in Haiti on the, uh, on the earthquake were larger than the budgets of the entire Ministry of Health, very substantially larger. You know, and, and isn't wasn't there some way that we could have helped the Ministry of Health a little bit more? I'll give an example. The hospital that we built, the big teaching hospital in central Haiti, uh, which has been supported by PIH Canada very substantially uh, and by a number of uh, colleagues at Canadian universities, that is a hospital we built for the Ministry of Health. It's their facility. They invested in it. They help us to build it. They help us to finance it. And they regard us as reliable interlocutors who are going to be working with them for years to come. And that that's something that I think we could instill in our development work, in our overseas development assistance or whatever we may call it. it fundamentally, it comes down to, as we learn lessons for ourselves, that we need domestic manufacturing capacity to ensure our own security, that we need to strengthen local public health units and more, that what is good for us is also good for others. And we need to ensure the lessons we're learning are lessons that others learn and that we financially support them in implement in implementation fundamentally. You know, I think that golden rule is just so helpful um, in, in contemplating all of these debates, just to say, hey, you know what? My guess is they want the things that I do. If exactly. I had understood that when I was 23 and 24 and 25 and 26 and 26, I wouldn't have wasted a decade in Haiti not understanding that we needed to keep our promise on capacity building, on building local institutions. And, you know, as I said, this kind of work always is, it's always effective. You know, that's why I'm sure they don't miss me. And I miss Haiti. I haven't been there in a year, as I said, but they don't miss me because they have that capacity and it's Haitian. You mentioned at the outset that you have a day job before I started recording do you find in your conversations with students and, and in your teaching that they are taking these lessons to heart? I sure do. You know, I, I, I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna, although since you read my books, you know I'm not. <laughs> but I am so impressed uh, by the students I meet, not just at Harvard, but in Haiti and Rwanda and lots of other places where we, we meet. There, there is in this up-and-coming generation I think in a new a new awareness of the cost 
of health disparities, and also an awareness that we really haven't succeeded in tackling them effectively yet, but can. And so I'm full of optimism and being a teacher, being a professor, again, at Harvard, my day job, but also in Rwanda and Haiti and elsewhere, has been very uplifting on that score. I, I, I think that at least infuses my optimism. Well, and I hope many more people that see your career too as someone who has dedicated themselves to to helping others and, and supporting others in, in a way that, frankly, most people don't. That that there's, I think, there's a professor to look up to in some ways. So I'm sure that makes a difference as well. Thank you, Nate. Thank you. I know one thing: I couldn't be a member of Parliament, but I'm pretty good at being a doctor. <laughs> well, I can't say I'm pretty good at being a member of Parliament, but yeah, like, I've, sur- I've survived five plus years so far. We'll see how it goes. Well, I, I do appreciate I do appreciate your time. As I say, I appreciate all your work. And if you do have thoughts along the way, don't hesitate to reach out. That would be great. I, I look forward to that, and look forward to staying in touch. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. Thanks, of course, to Paul for his time and to Mark for setting it up. You can learn more about Partners in Health at PIH.org. And Bending the Arc is available on Netflix. Again, Paul's recent book is Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds. If you like what we're doing here at Uncommons, please do leave us a positive review on your platform of choice and subscribe at uncommons.ca. Otherwise, until next time.